Hello and welcome to the Majlis podcast, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty's current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. I'm Mohammed Tahir, host of the Majlis and Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty's media manager here in Washington, D.C. The tension between the local authorities and informal leaders in the autonomous Gorno Badakhshan region of Tajikistan has taken a new turn last week when the authorities began squeezing the local informal leaders and influencers. In the latest turn of events within the past few days, a prominent Badakhshani activist, Alu Watshoyev, was uh, arrested in Russia and deported to Tajikistan, where he is apparently in detention. This case followed trouble with another Badakhshani activist, uh, martial arts player, Chorshambe Chorshambayev. Uh, charges seem to be pending in the local court, and the biggest of all was the charges against Mohamed uh, Bokir, Mohamed Bokirov one of the influential figures in the region. So the accusations against them are something in the line of hyping ethnic division, insulting government officials, etc. But for locals, none of them make sense and they question government's real intention, pointing at the activities of special forces, etc. in the region. So what is going on in Gorno Badakhshan region? What is this all about? What is the backstory and what's next in this tension? To discuss all these, I'm joined by Dr. Susanna Levi-Sanchez, author of the recent book called Bridging State and Civil Society, Informal Organizations in Tajik Afghan Badakhshan. Subhia Mastan Shoyeva, independent researcher. Her background is on peacebuilding, gender in human rights and Subia is currently doing graduate studies in Geneva. Sirojitin Tolibov, managing editor of Radio Free Radio Liberty's Tajik Service. Bruce Panier, the editor of Radio Free Radio Liberty's Central Asia blog, Kishlok Awazi. Thank you colleagues for joining us today on this very important conversation. So let me start with you, Sirojitin. As we speak, what is happening in the region? Sort of kind of reality check on the ground. What's going on? Yeah, everything started with the arrest, deportation of Charshan it's a semi-professional MMA fighter. Uh, he was a well-known figure in Russia among Pamiris, and uh, he was also outspoken critic of Tajik regime. He also used degradatory words towards, you know, some other regions of the country. Eventually, he was arrested for traffic violation and then deported to Tajikistan. Upon the arrival, he was arrested, and this was the beginning of outcry in Pamir region. All was happening after the events in Kharukh. And then after that, Alawuddinov was arrested. He was also a leader of uh, Pamiri youth in Russia. He disappeared, and then later on, prosecutor's office of Tajikistan admitted that he was extradited uh, to Tajikistan, but interim ministry said that he voluntarily returned to Tajikistan. So after that, the authorities announced that they put into the wanted list Muhammad Bakir, Muhammad Bakirov, who is uh, one of the well-known figures in Badakhshan, who lives in Badakhshan. So although he claims that he had nothing to do, he never criticizes the authorities. So uh, as we can see, many well-known activists of uh, Badakhshan are being arrested. People are very concerned of uncertainty. Uh, Badakhshan is cut off from other parts of the world, you know, more than 100 well-known figures 
of Badakhshan, including the former governor of Badakhshan, can't leave the country. So mm. it seems that 45% of the country is completely isolated. There is no internet and uh, blackouts mm. also happening. Thank you, Sirajuddin, for you and your colleagues on Azadi for terrific reporting on that. They, they have been extremely helpful to understand this complex tension. Equally helpful was Subhia. You are up. It's reflecting truly a local perspective in this ten- tension. I know that you are not currently in Tajikistan as your writings tell me that you are from there with existing local sources. So tell us, please, how your sources describe the situation as we speak on the ground. The situation on the ground is is becoming quite intense because people, um, apart from the whole idea of which I don't support and people on the ground don't support either, is that everything is linked to these informal leaders. People are quite concerned with the fact that the case of alleged extrajudicial judicial killing of Gulbuddin Ziobekov back in November and the investigation on the case and the investigation of the then uh, use of force against demonstrators, which also so led to the to the death of two other civilians and injuries among the demonstrators are not really going moving forward and the commission that was established by the people themselves uh, it's quite representative the commission is comprised of 44 people from the civil society and they represent not just the administrative center Khurok, but they represent the different rayons in, and in this sense they are quite uh, representative and they're not really Really in a position to work because a lot of tensions are happening, lots of pressure is on the commission as well, so they can't really move forward with the investigation and with the work both with people and with the local government as they are supposed to be the dialogue makers. So this 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 becomes quite worrisome mm. for many um, as we were putting lots of hope on the commission and mm. thinking that they are legitimate, they have been established by law, so they have legitimacy, but now they're not really being listened to and they can't really move forward with the investigation and with making sure that there's some dialogue and uh, negotiations are going on. So the investigation process now, is it is it stuck? The investigation process is, is it's not clear. I mean, it's the investigation, first of all, was only started on, the, I mean, it was going on on the case of Gulbedin Ziobeka, the the alleged extrajudicial killing but the cases of deaths of of people who were among the demonstrators they have not been investigated so this was one of the concerns that the commission was raising but also with the death of Gulbedin it's it's not clear whether whether the investigation team is is meeting or are they continuing the work it's not really clear and then the commission apart from that also does many other types of works they are talking to the people they are they are, they, they are gathering other claims of of people people for instance being injured and claims on on the internet blockage and things like that but a lot of pressure is on them now to practically not stop to, to, to talk to the people and stop making any statements. They've just released a video statement a few hours ago making a statement to the UN High Commissioner as I, I would say they have lost hope in many other mechanisms of, of uh, solving the issue locally. Mm, very worrisome. Uh, just kind of a, a personal uh, question there to you, Subhia. So when was the last time you had the chance to speak to your family there or maybe your 
friends and contacts on the ground? Um, I talked to my family one and a half week ago. Mm. Um, it's not possible to contact them through social media as we used to do mm. before. You know, you can call through Skype. It's and it's it's quite expensive for people to call through Skype and to talk to their their people on the ground. But it was one and a half weeks ago. Mm. But we do have contacts with the commission members. So, mm. for instance, in doing human rights reporting and things like that, you can call them. It's not also possible to do regularly, but you can do that from time to time. Mm. But speaking of the commission, I guess you were talking about the uh, problems, the way it's working or the obstacles. I guess the, the government has already made its mind as they are chasing this, these local leaders, even without waiting for the outcome of those, uh, you know, reports. That's also a, a concerning element. But uh, yes, Rajatin, maybe I could invite you back here. Maybe, Bruce, you could jump in here. So we are talking about here, at least when speaking to this latest round of attentions, three names sort of emerge in the headlines. George Shambayev, the martial art player, uh, Alouad Shoyev, the activist who was brought back from Russia, Mehmet Bokirov, who are in the hot water. So please uh, educate us if there are other names that I'm missing in this mix. As far as we know, more than 100 people in the blacklist, uh, they can't leave the country at all. They can't live abroad. And plus, apart from that, there is a huge campaign which makes local people are very unhappy. Uh, Sirojit, uh, when you say huge campaign, how should we visualize that? What is happening? Yeah, uh, uh, regional TV are forcing local authorities, ethnic families to talk on TV mm. and uh, criticize those who died during that uh, event in Khorok. And plus, you are talking uh, about the number. Although investigation is going on, and then. Apart from that, there are huge uh, campaigns you know, to stop the criticizing authorities. Even our colleagues in Dushanba have been called several times to the foreign ministry and uh, request, uh, they requested us to stop reporting about uh, events in Pamir until investigation is completed. But uh, we denied and uh, we possibly may face charges from the authorities in the future, in the nearest future. This is what they said uh, mm. recently. Mm. Susanna, maybe you want to jump in here. So Srojitin is talking about, in addition to these three names that I mentioned, and there are people uh, in the wanted list, what is the kind of connecting point between these people who are currently being sought after uh, by the authorities? Srojitin, I hope you and your colleagues are okay there. Um, Just briefly before I go into the connecting points, I'm just going to mention a couple other people that, from what I understand. So Araz Vazirbekov is a Pamiri Uh, leader in in Moscow. He put out a video, I think yesterday, saying that the Tajik government is coming to uh, assassinate him and saying that he is a Russian citizen. And he is strong leader like Avlat Shoya Amridin there, but he's more on the uh, the intellectual side of the leadership. Mm. That's one. And then there's also Jamshedov, who is sort of a Bokhir's deputy. From what I understand, they're going after him as well as a group of leaders that are around Bokhir. There are these hundreds on the blacklist. There always seems to be these huge lists after protests, but there are specific people that the government really wants to get rid of or control their voice. And and so how it connects, in my opinion, is that all of these leaders are influential and they have influence both within the Pamiri diaspora as well as the Pamiris living in Harok. Hmm. And they also have voice within the international community in Russia and toward the UN. But they are all vulnerable because they are in Russia and 
in the Pamirs. There is one other person that has been arrested, which is the mother of Abdurrahman Zuranai, I think is how you pronounce his name. He is a popular blogger from Vadat, who is in Germany, but he spoke um, in support of the Pamiris, and his mother was arrested five days ago. So it seems to me they've been trying to crack down on these informal leaders, local leaders, for a very long time, and now they are doing more so. I mean, I have some rumors or notes about troops that have been moved there mm. and the various articles against Bokir that Asia Plus published in the Tajik Penal Code. And it all seems to be pointing toward getting rid of any influence or any independence of the Pamiris in the region in order to be in control of that region. I guess the question is why, right? Yeah. Why are they, why, why do they want to be in control? And there's, should I speculate on that? I mean, we are going to speculate about that as Hosey, <laughs> in, in any way. I mean, you know, the region is already part of Tajikistan. As, you know, what else you want to control there and why you want to do that? There are so many questions and we are going to talk about these aspects when we discuss the, this case in the background. So uh, before that, Bruce, first of all, uh, I guess I have two questions to you. One is, what do you see happening there? And the second thing is the official line as to what these people have done wrong. I mean, the, the ones who are currently in trouble are detained and the ones who are being sought after. When you look into, when you study the official line, what does that tell you? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting just that it's happening now. I suppose it was it was always inevitable. The government has, has always had, at best, a tenuous hold over this region, right? And in the past, their hold was based on agreements that they made with these people that were calling informal leaders, right? Um, that there, so there was kind of a truce that, was, that, that has fallen apart several times over the last 15, 20 years, uh, without a doubt. But, but there's, there's like these agreements that they reached. The, the thing that I find disturbing about this is that the government seems to really be pushing this and feel that there's some reason why they, they can actually go after these people that we're calling informal formal leaders at this particular moment. You know, we, there's different reasons I suppose we could get into it, and I'd be happy to talk about it too in a minute. But, yeah. you know, so they're charging them all with, like you said, I mean, there's all the brain, you know, inciting national hatred, a bunch of things. And, and the, the Tajik government's been happy, and certainly some officials have been happy to keep calling these people criminals, right? They brand them variously as being in charge of, uh, you know, whatever, narcotics, some smuggling mm -hmm. routes, maybe narcotics, sometimes it's cigarettes, sometimes it's semi-precious stones and things like that. But they, they never charged them with anything mm -hmm. that had to do with that. So they've been really tarnishing their image. And really, that's one of the big things that they, these local leaders are unhappy about. You know, Mahmoud Bakirov is, is one that says, you know, that they're putting people on TV that are making all kinds of claims about them that just aren't true. Or at least one person, the head of, local head of education, who then said that, oh, you know, God. not only called him terrorist, essentially, but then said that, that Mahmoud Bakirov beat him up. The energy minister, I think, also singled out Mahmoud Bakirov and said that he was also a criminal, things like that. So, but they're really pushing it hard this time, and it's and it's across a, a wide group of these local leaders. I mean, there's been individuals they've been unhappy with in the past, and they've gone after them unsuccessfully, and it's always caused problems. But they seem to have lined them all up, and they're going after all of them at once. Mm. 
It, it split the community too, yeah. you know. Saroja Jing was saying they're getting locals to trying to force them to come on TV and um, say that these people really are criminals and stuff. And then there's there's other members of the community up there who are out making these these people that appear on TV outcasts. I mean, mm-hmm. it's really split the whole community up. And the backdrop to all this is the introduction of forces, you know, government forces up there who have clearly been trying to to get Mahmoud Bakirov and probably some other ones too, but they tried to get around his house. And it's only because his supporters have prevented them that they probably haven't taken him into custody already, although that one would imagine that violence would break out immediately. But there's a a lot of things that are happening up there. You know, one thing I'll mention too, because I want to let everybody else mm-hmm. talk, is that this all started after Yadgar Faizov left the post. He was the head of Gornobarakshan Autonomous Oblast Region. And, um, and he, like he, he was, was the governor or what? He was replaced at the start of November. And all the problems started yeah. after they brought in the new guy, uh, Ali Shir Mirza Nabat. That's that's very interesting too. I mean, I, I don't know who might uh, want to jump in here. Like when I was, you know, reading, for example, uh, also these reports, and especially uh, the way Mehmet Bokirov is responding to this. I mean, he's clearly pointing finger at governor. So at least speaking of this tension surrounding Mehmet Bakirov, is it of this governor's creation or it, how much of involvement is there by Dushanbe in what's happening in the region at, as we speak? You know, Seb, when we talk about Mohammed Bakir, we must uh, admit that he's a very controversial figure. Although he's well known in Badashan, we know that he went to a local authorities' home and uh, demanded him to leave uh, his place, uh, to leave the area immediately, because he made a statement on TV. And when we interviewed him, he was, uh, Muhammad Bakir was very rude, openly. Uh, and and that, Why, what, what you said, uh, he, what you mean when you say rude? He said that he had nothing to do with, uh, you know, say he, he, he did not come out against the authorities. He never was against the pol- uh, government's policy. Now, he is in the wanted list now. As far as we understand, the uh, new governor is uh, pressuring on people. Yeah, we can feel that. Mm. On the other hand, the Dushanbe authorities are also very concerned of the situation in the region. As you know, such events uh, as uh, it happened uh, a few months ago happens every two, three years in Badashan. The worst of which was in 2012 when more than 100 people were killed. So we have to bear in our mind that the feeling in that region is completely different than other parts of the country. And unemployment is very high mm. and uh, the population is only 230,000 and you know, it's almost 45% of the country is in Badashan territory. So authorities are very concerned and they started, you know, tightening the grip after the events in Kazakhstan especially. Mm. I think there is a sense of uh, concern among the Tajik authorities as well. Yeah, you know, the, as you were talking about, Israjitin, such events kind of repeats once in two, three years. But this time it's it looks like in a whole different level, like, you know, all the way Russia seems to be in cohort in some ways, like, you know, detaining those influential Pamiris, Badakhshanis and deporting them to uh, Tajikistan. So that kind of, you know, brings us to this question earlier. Soji was talking about what is really government is trying to do here and what is the background story in all this in the context of where things might be headed going forward. So let's continue the debate talking about these aspects very shortly.
first, let me recap the conversation that today on the Majlis podcast, I'm joined by uh, Dr. Susana Levy-Sanchez, author of the recent book called Bridging State and Civil Society, Informal Organizations in Tajik, Afghan, Badakhshan. Subhia Maston Shoiba, independent researcher on peace building and gender and human rights and originally from Badakhshan. Sirojitin Tolibov, managing editor of Ready for the Liberties, Tajik Service. Bruce Panier, the editor of Ready for the Liberties, Central Asia blog, Kishlok Awazi. I'm Mohamed Tahir, host of the Majlis podcast and Ready for the Liberties media manager here in Washington, D.C. And we are discussing the proving tension in Tajikistan's autonomous Gurno Badakhshan region. So, yeah, in terms of the, the size and scale of this this crackdown, maybe, uh, uh, Sozi, you would like to take this question. I mean, as Rajatin was talking about earlier, we had this tension back in November and a couple of years back again, you know, something triggers and we are again back into this kind of environment. But this time, maybe I'm exaggerating this, I don't know, but, you know, people being brought back from Russia, what do you see? What really the Tajik authorities are trying to do here? So in terms of um, the larger picture, I think it's important to look back at 2012, 14, 18, just a little bit. In my opinion, the 12 and 14, both I was pretty close to the area at both of those times. 2014, I was there to witness the entire thing. 2012, I was there right before that. Um, And I think those were more about the illicit economy and then gaining control from the local leaders of, of those things in very aggressive ways. I actually think that this one is a little bit different. And while it might be about also controlling the economy, I think part of it has to do, and this might be a little controversial, is, you know, I think China and Russia both have authoritarian dictatorships. The Taliban took over on the other side of the border. The West has withdrawn. And the Tajik government now has an opportunity with the support of Russia and China to really assert a certain amount of authority. There recently has been Russian sort of propaganda Outlet saying that the Aga Khan Development Network and the Aga Khan Foundation, are, which has been going on this propaganda for a while, are instruments of the West. So there's kind of a movement and a, a fear of the locals are fearing, mm. from what I have heard, as well as it appears this um, propaganda is trying to delegitimize the Aga Khan Foundation and AKDN, which they view as the Western sort of bulwark in the area that Mm. is um, countering the Chinese and Russian and Tajik authoritarian crackdown. But it does seem that as, you know, China is is allegedly funding this base in Ishkashem and Russian troops allegedly are in the, what was former Shurabad, I I forget the new name of the area. There's allegedly Belarusian Spechnaz that are now in Selkov Technica at the military base there. There's a lot more of those countries' involvement to really gain control of both the region in the security sphere as well as the economic sphere. And I think there's also fear um, among locals that there's a uh, purge Pamiri identity in a way and the independence that is being supported in Moscow by the expat community. Mm. So they feel they need to crack down on those the outside expat community as much as the inside in order to control 
the the influencers, if that makes sense. I mm, hope that was clear. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, there are a couple of points that I would like to follow. But before that, on the, the question of timing, Sophia, you already raised your hand, which is great, I, which also gives me an idea that you want to say something about what you just heard from Dr. Sana. Please do that. But my second question to you was, Sophia, in terms of the, the timing, what is the local perspective on the timing? And what do they think? Why all this is happening right now? What comes to your mind as a local leader? Um, thank you, uh, Muhammad. Um, I think I agree with Susan in, in, in the sense that when, when she mentions that this time it's quite different. And apart from the the geopolitical reasons and, and uh, factors that she mentioned, um, I think from the perspective of the persistence impunity that is happening in Gabao is, is another thing to, to consider because the local people have seen uh, these violations coming from the law enforcement and, and security uh, forces for many years now. It's a decade now. So it's happened in 2012. It's happened in 2014, not only in Horog, but also in, in, in Ishkashim, for instance. It happened in Roshan. So the, there, there have been several incidents of breach of law by the security forces and, and uh, the, the, the law enforcement. And I think that, that it really came to the, to the, to the point when the locals have really lost trust in and hope in the sense that they don't see any kind of punishment following and any you know due process and any any judicial process or anything justice is, is not really there so that adds a lot to that and the, the demonstrations that happened in November they were quite different from what was happening back back in in time mm. because they were lots of them well lots of the protesters were women I was told that more than half of them were women and it doesn't really link with that theory of of criminal groups mobilizing young people to come and 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 protest so Mm. there were lots of women and you can see from the the videos that are put on social media that statements also during the demonstrators were made by women mostly and then there were lots of also demonstrations outside of Tajikistan as well we've seen that in Moscow and in other cities so I think this time it's lots of other people who didn't really have any sentiments for informal leaders before they didn't know even them some of the young people don't know them you know they haven't met them for instance Mm. I have never met any of the informal leaders uh, myself now is the the issue is more around we've seen these things happening but we've never seen any follow-up on this and no investigation nothing is really happening so this the size of the people that are protesting now and the the category of people that are protesting is quite different from what what, what we have seen back in you know the other incidents um, and I think that's that also plays a big role in why the government is, is being quite serious with their response as well because it's becoming really socially legitimized protest by mm. by not just people in Gabal but also throughout Tajikistan as well. Mm. That's very interesting uh, point there, uh, Sobia. Thank you very much, Bruce. Uh, if I can invite you here, you know these these tensions we are talking about today, and there were another episode in, in November last year, and as Sobia was talking about, is a decade old story. Tensions come and goes, but there has to be a backstory, a bigger story triggering all this in the background. What is that? The immediate tension is um, 
you know, as Sabia said, a young man was killed there in November. And people, a lot of people there think that justice hasn't been done. You know, I mean, they portrayed him as, as being the villain in all this when, you know, he was security forces came to his house, shot him. You know, and now they're trying to make it sound like there was a big shootout or something. It's, you know, it's real unclear if that was exactly what happened or not. But but the government seems to just be going with the security services line that, you know, he resisted arrest. And so he was shot, you know, and that's it. And a lot of people are real unhappy about that because they, they see it more as an assassination where the, you know, yep. security forces yep. went and but, got him. Yeah, but and tension, when an incident like this uh, happens and the those existing tensions comes together and suddenly you have a big protest going on and then in response, Tajik authorities come and they crack down. And what I'm saying is like, I'm just kind of trying to understand what is the backstory, why there is tension in the first place in, in Gabal? Well, okay. I mean, the simple answer is it's a unique region, as we've mm. heard. I mean, mm. this is not, the people there are not ethnic Tajiks. Mm. The, the indigenous people there are not ethnic Tajiks. They're different. And yet they have to obey the rules of the Tajik government and have to be educated in Tajik language and, and all that. So there, there's obviously a tension there. They want autonomy. And in fact, you know, the Gornobadikshan Autonomous Oblast, at least in Russian, is how that reads. But they don't really have this kind of autonomy, right, at all. The government is trying to impose some kind of control over them. You know, and I can give you an simple example of how this works. And I've heard that people and up there have complained about this before. Now, because they're an autonomous oblast, they're supposed to have certain rights, some special rights that the rest of the country doesn't enjoy. Now, one of those, they're supposed to be able to tax, put a tax on goods coming into the Tajikistan from China, all mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. that are coming along the road. But a lot of the stuff that's coming from China is going to companies that are owned by members of Rahman's family, President Rahman's family, or his friends, and they're freed from taxes. So all that stuff goes through, and the money that should stay in Gornobadakshan and help the local economy doesn't, doesn't ever appear. Uh, because these said these people are, are exempted from having to pay taxes when they go through. So this is something that the you know the locals are like, well, what? Why why we get none of that money then? Even though we were supposed to get some of it, and we're the poorest region in Tajikistan, and and yet still we can't get this. So I mean, you know, it's those kind of problems. They promise there's promises of things that they're supposed to get that are special rights that don't come through. A lot of people see the government and the people in the lowlands of Tajikistan, for lack of a better term, as not really being part of their people. You know, they're religiously, they're most of them are different than the rest of Tajikistan. They're Ismaili Shiites as opposed to Sunni. You know, so there's some significant differences between them, you know, and they want to preserve that. And they want to preserve their old cultures, too, you know, their traditions up there. But they're being pressured to conform. Mm. It's kind of a much smaller version of what was happening with China and Xinjiang. Mm. You know, it's hard to compare that exactly, but it's still similar where this is a unique culture that feels that it's being culturally exterminated mm. by the, the government in Dushanbe. Yeah, I I know Dr. Suzanne has a lot to say about this, but also local perspective is important to understand the real scope of the problem. So, Sophia, just to, to loop you back here, you know, this as you said, the tension comes and goes and every time trigger might be something different, but in the background, you is this long lasting grievances long lasting distrust so what they think uh, that the tajik authorities are doing wrong there from their perspective yes uh, sure i think what i mean the but from the local perspective is that i mean first of all that's the, the poorest region so mm. there's this feeling of neglect i guess from mm. the central government um there's a really high level of unemployment in the region there's a really high level of youth who are neither in, enrolled in school nor in, in employment, the so-called need category of youth. 
who are quite vulnerable to becoming engaged at crime and all types of things that we have the highest number of male need in in the country and there are, there are so many other vulnerability categories where Gabao comes as first so I think these are some of the the socioeconomic factors that play out and people do feel that these grievances are new, not really met and and then apart from that people feel that the, the region is being highly militarized so there's you know every year the the, the militarization continues and that also gives the impression that the the government is not trusting the people either the government is not trusting the local government in Gabao the government is not trusting local people who are working within the law enforcement and that's why they are sending these troops from the, the from Dushanbe and other places so this this also becomes like an issue that why this distrust towards us is there something else you know behind that so i think and and this built that has this has built up for years now and it's it's going to be quite difficult to really try to bridge these di- divisions and this distrust but i think you know the commission can play quite a, a big role if the government is willing to to focus on the commission and to focus on a dialogue rather than using you know force again as as it, it's, it's been in in the past yeah so you say sovia that the the commission could have been utilized better and be used as an opportunity to lay the foundation of something that that they could build on um yeah it's pity but but again you know that sort of explains the nature of this deep seated uh, mistrust between the local informal leaders and the authorities in Tajikistan Dr Susanna I, I guess both Bruce and uh, Subia kind of hinted to this but given your in-depth research on this particular matter I also wanted to hear your thoughts on this and uh, maybe uh, from a little uh, different perspective as we all discussed it is a, a decade old tension and um, cases after cases sort of added new layer into into this tension I know it's not going to be easy to sort it out but I just wondered your thoughts on what are some of the specific areas where thinking among the local leaders and the authorities drastically differ from each other in terms of sources of the problem and the possible areas of solution I was I'm just trying to point at the gap between these two parties and whether that can be can be bridged in some ways. Mm. I think first of all the grievances between the different for lack of a better word ethnic or ethno-linguistic mm. groups and and ethno-religious groups you know those were formed and cultivated at the beginning of the Soviet period and not only between the Tajiks and the Pamiris but even the Shugnis and the Roshanis and the Roshkali, you know, as the purging of local leaders and then access to the supreme Soviet, so to speak. That's one thing. And those tensions have continued into today in various ways. And then I think what Bruce said about this, the taxes don't make it to the local areas. In the battle in 2014, where they shot and killed, they shot two local le- three local leaders and two of them died from what i understood i interviewed them both at length they were in charge of the the tax so to speak that goes in and out of the city and at that point the tajik government wanted to take that back so there's that issue i think the other issue is that what i think subia said is that this is not only or maybe bruce said it this is not only anymore an issue of just the pamiris other tajiks are getting involved as well as other people in the larger tajik diaspora 
aside from the Pamiris. And that, I agree with Sabia completely, that really hasn't happened to that extent before. And, and I think that, you know, the informal leaders have a position of local governance. And I've interviewed most of them and asked what their role is. And their role really is to actually find ways to support the community, not enrich themselves, and be conduits with the government. I think that this commission was similar to a group that formed in 2014, um, but this one is more formalized. And I think there was a lot of hope around the commission. I think the Tajik government actually issued an arrest warrant for Faramuz, the lawyer, if I'm not mistaken. And that's also a new, much more aggressive form of going after people or the local civil society leaders that are trying to bridge the gap between the locals and the government because many of the locals feel the government is actually not fulfilling their function as a government in that area. Again, going back to the taxes don't make it there. The president's family takes over businesses, controls, for example, the bazaars and and various other businesses. And it's very difficult for families and youth to be able to gain access to that local economy. So uh, what Bruce said is, and I'll wrap up, I'm sorry I'm going on, but, um, you know, the, the, the killing of Gulbuddin ignited this brush that was ready to go because it was one more thing against the local community that, that seemed extremely, you know, out of place for the government. Mm-hmm. They went after and killed a local citizen, and, you know, it's not the role of the government to mm-hmm. kill local citizens. Uh, it's, it's the role to arrest and, and try and court, et cetera, et cetera. Right, so. right, right. I don't know if that explains. I mean, yeah. it's, it's challenging. It is, it is challenging. <laughs> now, obviously, we are not going to be able to, you know, unpack everything that is attached to this tension with the history of it in one podcast. And perhaps this is the time uh, we have to really wrap up the conversation today. But maybe very last point here, you know, the, the way I look into this, and as I think I, I repeated this a couple of times already during this conversation, I mean, this the size and scope, the frequency, the coordination of uh, this tension on all sides, like both on the from the authorities' perspective, like bringing back those people, activists from abroad, from Russia, and maybe the ones who could not be brought, kind of squeezing their family members in Tajikistan, and the way they are kind of, you know, issuing these uh, warrants or maybe blacklisting people from leaving the, the country or maybe isolating this region. And on the other hand, Gornobadakhshan, people are rising up and rising up more often, more frequent, and they are speaking up elsewhere outside and inside Tajikistan. So this thing is it's not going anywhere, but it's proving up. So where is this going? Where is this going next after this stage? I mean, I guess this is the last question I wanted to ask, and we can start with, uh, with any of you, maybe Srojitin. As a journalist, where do you see this thing is going from here? Mohammed, it's very difficult to predict because, you know, we don't know what's going to happen next. The feeling of being different from other parts of the country among the Pamiri youth, especially those who live in Russia, is very is rising. The uh, Russia's policy also is contributing to that feelings as well. You have to remember that in Badashan, there are many distinct languages, uh, Shugni, Rushani, Khufi, Bartangi, Rushani, Sarikuli, Yazgulami, and um, some of them are, you know, endangered. They are in the included into the Red Book. So when they speak, they communicate in Tajik between each other. 
you have to remember that it is very sensitive issue although you know the population is religiously is also different from other parts of the country but many people in other parts of the country are also very sympathetic to to these people and uh, we have to remember that uh, the other people intelligentsia let's say so among tajiks are very concerned of these you know separatistic feelings hmm. They don't want these, you know, rise and uh, to cause problems. Uh, for them, it's a uh, national unity, integrity, oneness of Tajikistan is very important. And I think, you know, some leaders in, in Badashar also understand this. Mm-hmm. And um, it may change rapidly. Mm-hmm. It depends on uh, big players of the region as well, of course. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Same question, in fact. You know, what are the areas... Perhaps, let me put it in that way, Subhya, you will keep your eyes on which are indicative of where things are headed from here after this stage. Um, I think the the first thing is how the, the whole investigation will yeah, go on and what will uh-huh. be the eventually the, the result of it and whether something will follow and it will be objective investigation. So that would play a big role. Um, and I agree with uh, with Sirujuddin in, in the sense that we have been, I mean, civil society and people people outside of the country and, and those who are engaged in human rights work. We've been trying really hard to, to push the you know back these sentiments of separatism and you know and, and these feelings of like being neglected and, and being indiscriminated against and you know these feelings among youth a lot but I can feel that it's getting really hard and hard to explain to people, to explain to a group of young people that this is not the, the way to, to to deal with this and if if things will get escalated and and the use of force will be the the option for for dealing with the situation i i think it's it's going to be quite unpredictable and i i fear that these separatist sentiments will will really raise Mm. You know, in in the meantime, again, the question is the same, but just to add one more additional thought here that might kind of play some role going forward in terms of the the way authorities are going to deal with the situation going forward is, I mean, Rahman is not a young man. Uh, Imam Ali Rahman that I'm talking about is not a young man. I, I don't know when that will happen, but soon we will see some kind of change on the top of the leadership. But I don't know whether that is going to have any kind of implication in the way the Tajik authorities have been trying to deal with this situation. So the final question being, Dr. Um, Susanna, to you, where do you see this thing is going uh, after this stage? Uh, I think to your question, I think what you asked before about gaps yeah. between the government and the yeah. locals is actually the path to where things will go. Mm. Um, you know, if the government continues to harass mm. and if they continue to try to arrest Bokhir, mm. as we've seen and as Subia pointed out, there are more people involved in this. And there's also many more women who actually all went to Bakharok to protect Bokhir. So that went on. And there also were troops that were trying to get into Gulakin, the center of Kharok, uh, two days ago, I think. And yeah. the youth stopped them at the Jamat Khuna, which is down outside of the main part of the city. So yeah. it is very clear that either the feelings of separatism or the feelings of we're an autonomous region. And this is, you know, if you're not going to give us an economy, you're going to attack our people. We're going to protect our space. Mm-hmm. I think that will happen. If the government continues their troop movement, they've, you know, enlisted popular front fighters from Kulab, they have these outside fighters. Mm. And I think that's the, the locals are feeling 
understandably squeezed and scared, as well as their their local leaders are being um, threatened with arrest, and there's this blacklist. Mm. So if that continues, you know, the locals, they are, from what I understand, there are night watches, there's, mm. you know, coordinated trainings uh, among locals, and, and the, you know, they want to be able to negotiate with the government through these civil society leaders to come to a fair agreement, and that mm. isn't happening. Yeah, the, the commission that earlier Sophia was referring to seems to be a one path to go to that direction. And also, the, the the other thing that you hinted, Sozi, is like at the moment, and I was reading on Ozodi's website, obviously, uh, Gorner is asking uh, Mehmet Bakirov to surrender, and he says he's not going to surrender. He didn't do anything wrong. And then he was also saying that if they come, we will try to uh, defend ourselves by stones. We don't have gun. So it looks like that, you know, the tension around the question of his arrest might also be something to keep our eyes on. So, Bruce, where your eyes are and will be? You know, is the government going to investigate some of these things properly? You know, the, the death of Zia Bekov is, is one. And are they actually going to treat this region fairly and, and show some, some genuine interest in developing it? Did, like um, Susanna was saying earlier that, you know, the, the Aga Khan, he's, he's kind of a, a strange figure for the government. I mean, sometimes he's vilified, sometimes he's praised. But without his help, the, the region would have would not be anywhere near as near where it is today. It's not well off, but it would be even worse off without the Aga Khan. So they should be encouraging more development. The government has to demonstrate that there's something, there's real justice being done to this region. You know, I mean, I don't want to go backward in the story, but remember when they had the protests in November, there was, what, six guys cut down some trees to block four, you know, forces from coming into the city. I think five of them got sentenced to jail. Some of them for like four years for cutting down trees to block the road or something like that. This just plays into that sense of they're picking on us all the time. There's the, the government has to do something to show them that there's some kind of fair process that they can use to express, you know, to get justice for their complaints or, and see that justice is done in cases where there's been abuses against them. And th- that really has never happened mm. uh, there. So yeah. yeah, it has been a really, really interesting conversation, uh, in-depth conversation. We often uh, do not have the opportunity to talk about uh, Gabo. I guess this is the first time we are doing this on the Majlis podcast. But, uh, you know, thank you very much for all of you. It's been really eye-opening conversation, uh, at least speaking from my perspective. So thank you very much, Dr. Susanna Levy-Sanchez, author of the recent book called Bridging State and Civil Society, Informal Organizations in Tajik-Afghan Border. So if you have not yet gotten this book, please go to Amazon and get it. I am waiting for, for mine. So thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Sanchez, today. And also big thanks to Subhia Mastun Shoiva, independent researcher on peace building gender in human rights and originally from Gurno Badakhshan, Sirojitin Tolibov, managing editor of Radio Free the Liberty's Tajik service, locally known as Rodio Ozodi, and Bruce Panier, the editor of Radio Free the Liberty's Central Asia blog, Kishlok Owazi. So thank you very much, colleagues, for joining us today. And this is from me, Mohammed Tahir, host of the Majlis Radio Free the Liberty's current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. Until next week, bye-bye.